The reading is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. The judgment of the nations. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at the right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, I was naked and you gave me clothing, I was sick and you took care of me, I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you were a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer that will, and the king will answer them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you who are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked and sick in prison and did not take care of you? Then. He will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Good morning. It's uh, good to be with you. I'm not sure it's good to be preaching. That's a bit of a, a worry. Um, I am just really pleased that we don't do dressing up in this church because I think I'd have to change from a quiet crobe into a cassock just to stand in the pulpit. So I'm really pleased there's no quick change scenes going on um, as we move along. So we're here to look at Matthew chapter 25. Let's just pray before we start. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation 
thoughts of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O God. I'm always wondering why we look at some of these passages, what they're about, where they're from. I understand why Simon takes his holidays about this time of year, every year, because he'll only then have to do one apocalyptic sermon rather than three, which is uh, quite an interesting moment. Um, I stand here thinking, hmm, yeah, I think I've chosen the short straw or was chosen for the short straw. And then I began to think, this is an exciting moment for me. I'm going to stand here and I'm from my tradition as a conservative evangelical with a few tweaks and twerks along the way. Um, yeah, the preaching Bloomsbury about judgment, hell, and eternal damnation. <laughs> what a great moment I have. <laughs> I began to look at the passage and I wondered what was going on in and around the world at that time. So while Matthew was compiling his gospel, gathering those words that Jesus said, the world in which he was living was marred by political, social, moral, and religious change. Vespian, Claudius, and Nero were the great political leaders of the time. Bordica, or as I remember her, Bordicea, was uh, challenging the Roman authority in England. The Seleus, something like that, tell me if I got it wrong, were defeated in South Wales. Just, you know, we were, we were being conquered. Titus is attacking if you're Jewish, defending, if you're Roman, Jerusalem, which culminated with the fall of Masada. The Jews have been expelled from Rome. The Christians are being blamed for the great fire of Rome. This is the historic situation that Matthew is gathering his information around. This is where Matthew is writing or compiling his gospel. Political insecurity, conflict, hunger, homelessness, fear has led to isolation, demonization, conflict within the Jewish and the emerging Christian church, as well as within the church itself between the Jews and the Gentiles seen represented in the stories in the books of Acts. So who is the writer of this gospel? I'm going to pin my colors and say it is the apostle Matthew, right? Only because when I've looked into the history of it, some say it could be Matthew. Some say it wasn't Matthew. Some say it could be someone else. Just for a name. 
Let's go there. It's the Apostle Matthew who has listened to Jesus, who has a ministry among the Jewish community of faith and is looking to present to the people who believe the truth about Jesus, Messiah, or as the Jewish would have known him, Yeshua, so that he can tell them about his fulfillment of the prophecies, his culmination of the current events, and hear their future hope. The fact that there is something to look forward to in all this chaos, this war, this clamor, this hunger, this insecurity, that there is a hope. Matthew wants to reveal Jesus to his readers, stroke listeners, who are mainly Jewish, as the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Appointed, the culmination and the promise of Scripture. Matthew, from the beginning of his gospel, has constantly pointed out to that fulfillment of Scripture in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And here in this discourse, he begins to reveal Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew puts on the lips of Jesus the words, Son of Man, Son of God, Judge, King, the one who's worshipped by angels, all themes familiar to the Jewish audience, all familiar to those who read or heard it. So at this point, Jesus is either the Messiah or a megalomaniac. Yeah, he's either one or the other. At the same time, in a different place, Paul is writing to the church, the Gentile church, with the similar themes and similar messages. As I said earlier, this passage is all about judgment. I found out something this week that it's not a parable. So it's not the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's a story of judgment. Shaking in my boots, quaking as I come to it. There are many discussions around this passage about where this judgment takes place. It says that it is the judgment of the nations. When you read the, co the commentaries, when did this one happen? Is it at the end of time, as in Revelation? Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Is it at the beginning of the tribulation? We don't know. We're not really sure. But it's a judgment. There are some hints here that it's not the end of time because the judgment at the end of time takes place with the great big book of life. Do you remember it from Revelation? And the big white throne. But this doesn't have the book of life. This doesn't have the big white throne. This is something different. And when talking about it, Matthew uses the word nations and not individuals, whereas the end times, the end judgment, is about an individual reckoning. 
The difficulty I find is that in reading it, that there are two classes. As the commentator said, there are sheep, there are goats, there is a right, there is a left, there is judgment, and there is eternal life. If this is a passage about everybody being equal, I struggle with that. Where I come from in South Wales, as John, John might remember it from his days there too, sheep, sheep, for goodness sake, why does God want to call us sheep? I don't like sheep. I really find sheep annoying. Um, in our village, they were allowed to roam the street. They would bleat and make a mess and they would ruin your garden and they would kick your bins over if they thought there was cabbages left in there before the days of recycling. They were horrible creatures. Annoying. I can remember them chewing half my Swedes in my allotment. It's just don't like sheep. So I've always had a slight affinity for the goat, thinking they must be a, must be a nicer creature. Until this week, I was, uh, as I was preparing for a sermon, I'd been working hard on this, I was listening to re um, Return to the Chateau DIY. And one of the chateaus had just bought a couple of goats to chew the grass, to save the mowing, because it was a much better thing to do. And the, uh, the board of, uh, of investors was turning up. And they, the couple who owned the chateau go, look at our great idea. We've got these really lovely goats. They're going to eat all our grass. And one of the investors went, I hope they're all females. What? What? Better research. Ah. Apparently male goats are very, very, very smelly. So, you know, I think my change, I might be changing my view of goats. <laughs> but when we come to the passage and we're looking at this, the division of this community, of the nations, into sheep and goats, I love the fact that both characters, both the sheep and the goats, were unaware that they had done anything right or wrong. They had no concept of why they were being judged. No concept of what they had done, right or wrong. It was just that they had. And the judge, the king, the son of man, says to them that you've done it for me, or to me. And here they stand, wondering, well, I don't remember. I don't know. 
How did I? Generally, around the community that these people were living, sheep and goats coexisted together. Nothing changed until the day when it was time to sell the creatures. It was then that those judgments were made because sheep were of more value to the farmer. But Matthew was writing to a community where the church, the emerging church, the Christians, the followers, the believers were merged within the Jewish tradition, were part of the synagogue, part of the worship, part of the, the normal day-to-day -day life of the Jewish community. But there was a coming a point and around this time it began to happen that the Jewish faith and the Christian faith began to diverge and the church was being extracised, moved out. And sometimes the Jewish faith sided with the authorities against the Christians. And Matthew was telling the story around inclusion, around support, around help, around care, around love, around not putting someone down. To this church that was finding itself moved away, excluded from not just the synagogue, but then citizens. You know, we end up with about 300 years of, of anti-Christian ideas and actions in the, Roman, in the Roman community. So what was Matthew saying to these communities? What was Matthew trying to say in all, with all that history, with all that knowledge of what was going on, with all that chaos and division and change, what was Matthew trying to say? Was he trying to say, it makes no difference what you do, do exactly what you like, because everybody's going to be treated the same? Was he saying, be careful what you do? because there is a judgment. Be careful what you do because there is someone who is watching. Encourage and enable one another. Move one another on in faith and be loving towards one another. What was Matthew saying? What was he challenging his hearers, his readers? To come away with. One of the commentators put it like this. The core message of the parable of the sheep and the goats is that God's people will love others. God's work will result from the relationship to the shepherd. 
Followers of Christ will treat others with kindness, serving them as if they were serving Christ himself. You might not know who you're helping. You might not know what you're doing. You might not know how you are supporting Jesus, the Son of Man. When we do good things for other people, when we care for one another, when we put ourselves out for one, when we defend one another. We don't know what we are doing, but we are called to do it. A priest from Marseille said, for what our Lord has here said, we see that God indispensably requires of every human being to bring forth good fruit. And that a fruitless, sorry, try that again, a fruitless tree shall be inevitably cut down and cast into the fire. It also be remarked remark that God does not here impute his own children to good works which Jesus Christ did for them. Now Christ feeding the multitudes in Judea will not impute to them while persons in their own neighborhood are perishing through want. And they've withdrawn and, and wherewithal to, re, to relieve them. And we have the wherewithal to, re, to relieve them. He gives them a power that they may glorify his name by it and have in their own souls the continued satisfaction which arises from scouring the distressed. Let it be further remarked that Christ does not say here that they have purchased their eternal life with their good deeds, but we're encouraged to do good deeds. In our world where there's a lot of othering, a lot of anxiety, homelessness, hunger, what are we as individuals going to do about it? A couple of weeks ago, and I haven't forgotten, I was asked to write a paper on what hospitality would look like in uh, Bloomsbury. And I've, it's got to be supporting and helping the lonely, the dispossessed, the ostracized, but how we do that, how we are challenged to do that, how we have the equipment to do that, how we have the people to do that. Because I know even though I don't like sheep, I'd rather be a sheep than be a goat. And perhaps as a response to this sermon, let me read a short text written by Simon, and it's an extract of a sermon he used sometimes in 2014, I think. Sheeps and goats. Stop the world, said the king. I'm getting confused. Let's take five, simmer down, and think. I'm trying to decide, and it just isn't clear, on the difference 
between goats and sheep. I know, cried a voice, I think it's to do with the people you meet and the things that you do. If you're kind to the poor and give food from your table and care where you're able, I'm pretty sure you're a sheep. Hark at him bleating on, came a second response. He's full of his own self-importance. I'm afraid it's more complex than that. It's not what you do to the poor that decides, it's the attitude with which you do it. A sheep must be holy and humble, and so if you are anything else, you're a goat. That's just woolly thinking, the first voice replied. If anyone is goatish, it's you. It's all very well being holy and such, but that doesn't, work, doesn't get anyone fed, said the goat to the sheep. I think we've resolved it. The sheep looks like me, and the goat looks like you. I see it the same, came the answer right back. A sheep looks like me, not like you. Hang on, said the king. I'm still no more clear. Are you both sure and certain you're the sheep? Why? Yes, cried two voices, both speaking at one. We know that we're sheep, and we're sure it must be, for we know that they all must be goats. So let me be clear, said the king with a sigh. You each want the other condemned? Well, it's never so clear, and I'm never so sure. And there's something that still gets my goat. You've heard of the herd, the tribe, and the nation, the people who act just like you. Well, the herd is a fable we're able to tell just to justify me and my own. If you think you're all sheep and that others are goats, you divide up the world very wrong. Then the king turned away and went on his, on his way and restarted the world once again. But after a minute, he paused in his stride and looked over his shoulder to see who was following him. So let's come together in prayer. <clears throat> in the next few weeks, we relive the well-known gospel narrative with this overwhelming drama, the solitariness of the wilderness, Christ's testing and temptation, the short-lived acclamations of the crowd, the purple of mockery, earth's darkest hour, and finally the triumph of the empty tomb. Therefore, in the season of Lent, as we face our own trials, temptations, we are confronted with many perplexities and anxieties which hold us back from that richer, trusting relationship in faith which the cross offers. We are a striving people and too often a struggling people. Lord, 
grant us the gift and the courage to persevere. Some more specific prayers for the world. Lord of life, yet once again we pray for the people of the Ukraine enduring a seemingly unending barrage of daily artillery and with no certain hope of any immediate conflict resolution. For the human devastation caused by the Pakistan floods, by the millions enduring famine and drought in East Africa and in other parts of the world too which share a less visible profile. Lord, thou who art the bread of life, grant sustenance to all who, through no fault of their own, are deprived of the plentiful fruits of creation. Let us remember too those who are suffering the pain of bereavement at this time, and we think especially of Liz Woodman on the death of her father this week. Let us pray for the sick, the sick in body and in mind, for those recently hospitalized, for those receiving palliative care, and for the many waiting anxiously for critical news surrounding their health. But let us give thanks too for all of those who share in caring for the sick, the needy, the outcast. And in an age of increasing unbelief, let us not forget our ministers and other church leaders who need encouragement and support in these often trying and frustrating times. Many toil selflessly, some becoming wounded healers themselves. May thy reassuring love enfold and comfort them, Lord of compassion and healing, hear our prayer. We pray too for the unemployed, the housebound, the lonely, for those struggling with debt, for those facing the bleak horrors of repossession and homelessness, for those whose lives are simply a great unknowing, and for all who struggle to make sense of the present. Loving God, in the season of Lent, as Christ who walked the way of suffering and of love, hold those who cling to the very edges of life in your tender love and care. Creator God, in your mercy, look charitably upon a fallen world. So perhaps we can sum up this time of Advent with these words, grief with hope, the redeeming love of the cross. And a few words from an Advent hymn in our hymn book. The cross, it takes our guilt away. It holds the fainting spirit up it cheers with hope the gloomy day and sweetens every bitter cup. Lord of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. Amen. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord smile upon us and be gracious unto us. May the Lord show his favor to us and give us peace. Amen.